0: Welcome back to Drunk Book Club, where we read books you might have heard of and didn't bother to read. My name is Fry, and with me as always is Dorothy. Hello! And this time around, we got to the author that every bad book podcast covers at some point. It's the gimme. (laughs) Yeah, but it was kind of. It's not that, you know, one person talking about a book means other people can't, but it was kind of difficult to find one that wasn't already well-trod territory, because you just you don't want to reuse a joke and you don't want to be boring and redundant. Mhm. I think everyone knows that Michael Crichton ain't shit. Yeah, but I sure read a lot of his books when I was a young teen. Cuz dinosaurs. The D- dinos. And they're the kind of books that are designed to make you feel smart while you while you take a plane. <laughs> And be done by the time you touch down. So the one we ended up picking, or that uh, Dorothy suggested, since I'm not much familiar with Crichton's books, I've uh, seen a couple of his film adaptations. I know Jurassic Park and Timeline and Twister. And we watched Westworld, the TV series. The first season was good. It sure was a good one-season show. (laughs) Yeah, sadly, the movie of Westworld not streaming? On the to-do list. Yeah. I had it on tape when I was a kid. And also um, I read the book a few times because again, I was really into Michael Crichton when I was a young teen because his books are designed to make you feel smart. He loves a techno babble. Yeah. So one of the features, I'm going to call it a feature because it's how he intended it. Mm -hmm. So it's not a bug of Crichton's work is that every book he writes is designed as a platform for him to give not even one-on-one level, but completely lay level uh, lessons in what he understands of a concept, Uh, usually scientific, sometimes economic. We're not reading rising sun. Okay. We are not qualified to handle that level of racism, which Mm -hmm. was another of the reasons we chose, chose sphere. It was from what I recalled, one of the least offensive of Crichton's books. (laughs) Yep, yep, and that, um, yeah, you deceived was me. Was this The Terminal Man or The Andromeda Strain? And of the three, this is the least offensive. <laughs> well, I mean, it, we're, it's good that you read The Andromeda Strain, because apparently this was kind of the companion book that he wrote to it. Yeah, which is very evident. This How one was so? begun in the 60s um, when The Andromeda Strain was in the works, but it wasn't published until 87, 20 years later. Because he, like, came up with the concept and then realized he didn't know where he was going with that. So he just put it on a shelf. Which is why we, why he has such a, a vast remaining treasure trove of unfinished manuscripts. I'm sure he does. W- why would HarperCollins lie? You're right. I don't um, know what came over me. Crichton, Crichton is deceased, in case you didn't know. And fuck him very much. And he... and. Like other brand authors, like Virginia Andrews, he had a convenient treasure trove of remaining manuscripts at his death. And like other authors who I'm sure will crop up with all sorts of unfinished works
1: Oh, probably their children
0: will have to polish up for them and make a few dollars off of. Mm-hmm. Not to say anything actionable. Certainly not. We're very poor. <laughs> yeah, this, um... You, you got me with this one. You got me with this one. I said it one. was the least offensive. Uh-huh. Like, the Terminal Man is hella offensive. The Andromeda Strain rests entirely on the idea that the only people qualified to make decisions are single straight white men. Uh-huh, you don't say. Because they're more rational in a life-or-death crisis. Mmm. Um, that's basically what all of the plots of his books revolve around is creating a situation where a very rational straight white man can make a decision i don't know in jurassic park it was the nice teenage girl who do the code not in the book oh in the book the girl was this annoying brat who liked sports how dare she the the boy was the one who knew anything a straight white man in training Mm Mm-hmm. but you know you had dr alan grant there Sam Neill was the one right. who played Alan Grant which is funny because Sam Neill mm-hmm. was the lead in Event Horizon which we'll come back to uh-huh. yeah so I feel like now authors put things on the shelf all the time and that's fine because like sometimes you come up with a concept and you realize that this is a good idea but where I'm at in my artistic journey I am I can't make it the best story it can be but like I don't know that you can do that with science writing. Yeah, that's the other thing. Um, Crichton always leaned very heavily on the appearance of writing extremely hard sci-fi. A lot of his fiction hinged on being set speculatively 10 minutes into the future of a given field of knowledge that he was not part of. Mm-hmm. Which is why paleontol—that There's that joke about how paleontologists hate Jurassic Park. Uh-huh. Yeah, because um, it all... Works to essentially misinform the public about where we're at in any given field of technology and what's possible in the near future. It's one of those. He things also was a climate change denier. I'm just bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's germane to this particular conversation. <laughs> and I think people who've only watched Crichton's films, it, it can be easy to say, "Ah, well, it's not that big a deal." You know, action movies stretch science for for effect all the time. But then you read one of his books and it's just a fucking novella stretched out to novel length by these info dumps. Yeah, there are always um, digressions where characters sit one another down and discuss their fields of study. And and all of a sudden, after, after 385 pages of that, I thought... Okay, I understand why it's cool and great to shit on him for being bad at science when he's patting himself on the back so hard for it now. How did he not dislocate his arm? I know. It's like, I don't, here's the thing, I don't hate Twister. I don't like Jurassic Park very much, but like, I I don't hate Twister. I mean, he was responsible for the organ panic in the 70s, so fuck him. Oh, yeah. Well, no, he was co-responsible for it. He wrote it, though. He wrote the film. Robin Cook wrote the book, which was an adaptation of the film. What? Did yeah. it, it that way? Yeah. Crichton <sighs> was responsible for the organ panic. Wow. With that very real story about uh, how how they were- how, how if you go into a coma in the hospital, they will kill you and steal your organs because there's a shortage. Very real. I and s- that had a huge- this, the TV miniseries had a huge negative effect on people's willingness to list themselves as organ donors because they believed they would not receive the same standard of care. I saw someone try to bring that back on Twitter last year. Uh-huh. Which is distressing. Just as a conspiracy theory, but they were... Uh, so I feel like before we get any further into the meat of the novel itself, uh, we should take a break and and tell folks what we're drinking. Right, so... So, Sphere takes place deep beneath the waves of the Pacific Ocean, um, somewhere off of Tonga, to sort of... Evoke that effect. I made some spherical ice cubes because I have spherical ice cube molds. They're super cute. Yep. And um, I whipped us up a drink made with uh, lemonade, blue curacao to get that nice blue color, silver rum, a little, just a little bit of soda water to give it some effervescence, and a splash of the remaining fascionola from uh, last month's. Drinks, you know that passion fruit syrup I made, just to give it a little tropical. It was very good. It tastes like sh- like soda. I was How not you do? a second one. It matches your hair. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah. So I was I was made to switch to the remaining tiny bottle of Moscato because <laughs> that that shit sh- sneaks up on you like a Long Island iced tea. Mm-hmm. So just for you lightweights at home. And I think it would be a bomb garnished with uh, a bit of orange peel, frankly. Ooh. Orange does usually go well on blue drinks. Well, the the blue curacao is actually an orange flavored liqueur. Oh, that would explain that. Mm-hmm. Huh. So I'm not used to enjoying books that we read for this show. <laughs> like at any point. <laughs> So I started getting really scared when I was about 150 pages in and having a, re- a generally good time. <laughs> oh, because like the the concept for this book, at least like the immediate pitch for it, is kind of I, I guess you said a piss take of his uh, premise for the Andromeda Strain. Where like this- I mean the fact that they were originally developed together makes me think he was not in fact taking the piss. <laughs> Womp! He just wanted to explore that again. Oh, the idea that the only person who can adequately make decisions in a crisis is a straight white guy who is not in the military. Yeah. So it starts with this guy, this middle-aged guy named uh, Norman. Norman Johnson. uh, In the film, they renamed him to Norman Goodman. Because he was played by Dustin Hoffman, and I guess they did—they just felt like if somebody was visibly Jewish, they needed a Jewish name. But So they gave him the most on-the-nose name possible. Yeah. Like, right up there with Johnny Goodguy. Yep, that happened. <laughs> yeah, so this dude, Norman Johnson. Back was... in the 70s. Uh-huh. And this is another thing that I wonder whether it was intentional when he rescaled the timeline of it, because this turns into a a giant uh, flipping off of of the uh, Carter administration. Which is certainly a thing. I mean, he seems like the kind of guy who would flip off the Carter administration. Yeah, he seems like he has time to flip off the peanut farmer man. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Norman Johnson was on this committee in the 70s to, like, plan out what they would ever do. If if aliens when. contact, excuse me, when when alien contact occurred, and so he thought it was all it bullshit. Was called Ulf, <laughs> not to be confused with with the other thing with Weird Al, the nice thing. That's UHF, not not to be confused with the the thing about the guy who eats pussy and lives on your couch. Oh, he he got abducted by the government and died, so it ended in the same place. <laughs> Not to be confused with the movie about the asshole who grew up on the North Pole. No. That's a different one. (laughs) Just a Tumblr post now. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so we have to burn this entire podcast down and start over, I'm afraid. But, so Norman comes up with this plan because it pays well and he needs a house. And then... That's very relatable, frankly. Yeah, honestly... And, and then, like, 20 years later, they call him in, and they're like, all right. No, it's only, like, six years later. Really? Yeah, yeah. If you pay attention to, to like, the timeline is- I don't, usually. As stated, no, it's, like, six years later, but he's in this totally different mental place. And, oh, that's- Right? It's bizarre, because it feels like it should be 20 years later. Uh-huh. Yeah, they call, but but they call him back, and they're like, all right, we put together this crack team to go under the sea according to your exact specifications. And he's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> um- And, yeah, so Norman is a psychologist. Um, His specialty is in group dynamics and anxiety. And these days he primarily handles, like, trauma research relating to airplane crashes. So that's what he assumes he's going to do here. Because, see, he's a shrink, but he's not one of those wusses who can't handle blood and and guts, y'all. Yeah, it's super weird. Also... Unlike his brother who's a Freudian he is a Jungian so there'll be no blaming of mother here. How dare you bring that good boy <laughs> look you don't get to quote Niles about Jungian theory that often <laughs> okay but like the concept of I fu- like I made a I came up with a dumb idea because <laughs> it will never be used and, and now I have house. to sit in it <laughs> <Yeah>. that's amazing. <laughs> That's a great concept for a book. Yeah, I shout out this crisis plan because aliens are not gonna show up. Oh no! Oh fuck! Oh fuck! Now I'm stuck with it. (laughs) He's also done unethical experiments, like convincing people they're about to die. So, oh yeah, no, Norman's a nice guy. And I hate him, but like as a novel concept, I love uh-huh. it. Uh huh. Yeah, that, that, that's a hilarious setup for a situation. Mm hmm. <laughs> so, we're told that his plan involved using a uh, a majority female crew. A... No, no. Um, a mixed crew. Yes. The majority female crew is just because of the physical constraints that the Navy has discovered for diving. Yes, it's important to have a mixed crew for for these kind of situations, because if it's all one gender, stress will escalate more quickly. And for reasons. And here begins bullshit number th- one. And there's never any, like, information provided on this that makes me believe any of it. It was like I was watching an episode of Elevator, but not fun. Well, he, he did elevator tests, remember? That was one of the tests he did. Uh-huh. With sealing people in an elevator and convincing them they were about to die. Turns out the quickest to crack, a basketball team. Hmm. You might be thinking, that's, that's not necessarily racist. It's racist. I promise you, with what comes later in the book,
1: it's, it's racist. racist.
0: <laughs> so he gets there. He also really hates jocks. Like, the Crichton, the author. Mm-hmm. Despite being over six feet. Six foot 9 Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he seems bougie enough that he probably wasn't forced to play basketball in high school, but, like... Mm-hmm. It's weird because Norman has that, has, like, a, a mini-speech about how the soft sciences, quote-unquote, are, are denigrated, which is a real thing. Very real. But also, he's a really masculine essentialist prick. Uh-huh. There's that whole sequence where he gets a hold of um like a rocket launcher harpoon and thinks about how big it makes his dick now. Uh, I hate him so much. I apologize for the noise, y'all. There's a train. Yeah, they're uh, the whistling of the train yards, as it were, from the side of the tracks, which we're on. <laughs> Norman is, is like a textbook, older man, wish fulfillment figure who's in here with all of these, young fit attractive experts but he's going to be the one who saves them in the end because you know you've still got it you've still got it older he's gonna target teach demographic them a, a thing or two mm-hmm. that there are ostensibly a bunch of women on this this expedition but three get lines uh-huh also he's married mm-hmm. and has kids i just have to remind you he's got, got a, a wife named once. ellen twice maybe yeah she has tension but with with their daughter, because women do be competing. They do. That that is a true thing that I've heard about. So the the actual important members of the crew are Norman, Ted, who is a shitty man child with a sports car. And and this means that he's not worth paying attention to. Like, he isn't. He is a shitty man child, but like but the sports car is, you know, shorthand for that. Mm-hmm. So Ted Fielding. Right. Uh, then there's there's Tina, Tina Chan, who's the-, communi- who's the She gets, like, four lines. Uh, you called her the Uhura of the group. You're extremely right. Yeah, she is the Uhura. She is a woman of diversity who- God, that's what handles, you would have said. Who handles the communications array. Yep. There is... Uh, Honestly, it's kind of hilarious, because it's like in Suicide Squad, where we get introductions to the characters that matter, and all the ones that die, we don't get these lengthy digressions into, and it kind of kills the tension. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder which one of these is going to uh, make it to the end. <laughs> There's also Captain Barnes, who is the shouty military man who's in charge of corralling them all. Mm-hmm. And, oh... This expedition takes place beneath the waves. So it's different from space movies, y'all. That's right. It's exactly the same as a space movie. We're suiting up to go down (laughs) instead of up. It is 100% the same as a space movie. Like, (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And all these characters are actually expendable meat. Uh, The ones it's going to boil down to, slasher movie style, are Norman, and then there is the lady one. Beth Halpern, renamed Halpern in the film because, I don't know. I don't she's know. She was played by Sharon Stone in the movie. Which, honestly, <laughs> if you have to pick a 90s starlet to play her, it should have been G.I. Jane-era Demi Moore. Uh-huh. I'd go for that. Because she's supposed to be ripped with dark hair. Yeah, she's supposed to look butch like, cut. like the nice scorpion lady in She-Ra. <sighs> or, um... The the excellent wrestler lady from uh from Deadpool. Yeah. Like strong. Yeah, like she's supposed to be super ripped and and this is an indication of her inherent deviousness. Uh Uh-huh. That well, no, it's it's that she's broken inside. Yes. But so yeah, she is the lady one. And then there She's damaged. uh Uh-huh. Then there is uh the cranky mathematician (laughs) Harry. Who, um stay with me if you've heard this one. In West Philadelphia. Born and raised. (laughs) I have to stop you. I have to stop you now. No, but. um, You're not wrong. He was played by Samuel L. Jackson in the movie. um, And much is made of the fact that he comes from the streets, y'all. But But he's the special savant. Michael Crichton is convinced that a neighborhood can only have one blurred. Just one. (laughs) (laughs) And Samuel L. Jackson was it. And like it, funny story, the first time I ever saw Samuel L. Jackson in anything as a kid was in a Michael Crichton movie. huh He was the hold on to your butts guy from Jurassic park oh i he did such a weird role. I always forget he's there, uh-huh, and I always forget that like in the nineties he he had like this kind of weedy build because I think of him as Nick Fury, yeah, so like mathematician, no, Remember Samuel in the L. Jackson? Ni- yeah, but remember in the nineties, Nick Fury was hasselhoff. A mistake. <laughs> so we ha- so we're boiling it down to a black man, a a uh, white woman, and a white man. I'm sure you can imagine all the wonderful places this novel is going to go. Not very far. They're under the ocean in a tin can. I'm- also, there's no fucking aliens. don't get your hopes up. Yeah, there's no aliens, not one. Does it explain why the fuck there's a spaceship from the future on the nope. bottom of the ocean? Nope because yeah, they've been called in because it's like there might be aliens down there because you know I guess he watched the abyss once <laughs> uh-huh I know he started writing it before the abyss but but like the it abyss time <laughs> <laughs> and this this is as interesting as the extended cut of the abyss. Harsh. <laughs> Not wrong, but harsh. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I kind of didn't hate, like I said, those first the, the first half or so. Because No, there's a fun energy to the start of a Crichton book. Like, because uh, he puts you in this environment. And and like, they, so the, they get on the spaceship and they discover this giant sphere and they don't know what it does. Norman's a fuckhead because, like, during the safety briefings where they explain pressurization, he just naps through it because this isn't important. Mm-hmm. Which makes him an active hazard to everyone around him. And like he's put on the defensive because they the the medical crew is shitty to him, where they're like asking all kinds of, of probing dickish questions about like his health and his weight and all of that. But but then like he proceeds to ignore all of the, you know, important staying alive shit. Mhm. Plus the whole he's a schlub who's overweight thing. Feels less like um like a relatable commentary on just aging and bodies than like Crichton trying to create a flaw in this guy because again Crichton was six foot nine. Yes, fatness This <laughs> must only happen because you're very lazy, right? Like it's hard to get fat when you're that tall. Mm-hmm. Like it, t- it would take a particular, like probably a medical like issue you can, at that height. Like can you, you can carry more weight on that frame, and you won't look fat the way somebody my height does. Right. It's And so, and also like the weight distribution is different. (laughs) Also, see our general point. Michael Crichton seems like he was a prick. Uh Uh-huh. So. Again, we're not doing Rising Sun because that's too much. But there is don't you worry, a constant worry that Japan is going to take over business in this novel about aliens on the bottom of the ocean. Mm Mm-hmm set when the cold war was still on uh-huh i mean that that kind of fear was throughout the the 1980s because japan's economic bubble was on the rise at the time not yet and burst. and the west was terrified of it um you can see it throughout any cyberpunk work mm. makes sense there's always a focus i mean it on doesn't but i see yeah sort of the asianization of everything I feel like Michael Crichton books are interesting in that they are very, or pop culture for the whenever they're made. Yeah, which again makes this one weird because it's, you know, a it draft. traveled through time. Yep. So yeah, what, what it is, is it's not aliens on the bottom of the ocean. It's a spaceship that went into a black hole and came back th- a couple thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. On the ocean floor, um, the the spaceship w- completed construction in the far off year of twenty forty three. Sadly, there are no whales on board. What does God need with a spaceship? <laughs> and then it like launched its final trip in like twenty fifty six. Mm-hmm. And all they can find on board are like the a bunch there's of randomly food. a mannequin in one of the cockpit seats. I guess because we're still doing stress tests on this voyaging ship. That's been in use multiple times according to its flight logs. I feel like that's a draft issue. Mm-hmm. Where it was supposed to be like a new ship and then he fucked around with it. and mm-hmm. Yeah. But really like the jump scare. You can definitely feel the this is just a screenplay written out-ness of it. Which is a common criticism of uh, his works. Mm-hmm. I remember when Amazon was brand new. There were reviews like that for Jurassic Park, The Lost World, the second Jurassic Park book. And then they did make it into a movie. Uh-huh. I mean, again, it bothers... I His movies are kind of dumb, and there are some of them that I really don't like, but I feel like it works a lot better when he's in a visual medium, because you can't get in the heads of his horrible, horrible characters. Uh-huh. Which is a real problem for this book. Yep. Yeah. So the, only, the, the the thing of interest on the ship is a big ol' sphere with no apparent entrances. It's like a big silvery ball. It's a plazamine pinball. I just saw a giant pinball. That's all I could see in my head. But it's got cabalistic markings on it or some shit. No, it's a giant pinball in a ship. No, but it's covered in grooves. Oh. I like my better. And they move around, but like... And, like, they all go back to the ship to try and figure out what the heck is going on. And then Harry, the mathematician, uh, decides to go back to the ship because he's figured something out. Again, they keep going back and forth to this ship when it's literally, like, across the ocean floor. Mm Mm-hmm. They're thousands of feet down. They're in a pressurized environment. There's a lot of time dedicated to how uncomfortable it is whenever Crichton remembers that they're down there. Which comes and goes, depending on what he uh, needs to stretch out a scene. But Harry has figured out how to open the sphere, and they, like, see it well, on the... first, Beth and Tina are talking to one another. Right. And as they're talking, the sphere opens in a recording behind them. Which and then, is a good visual. Yeah, and then... So there's a lot of use of the recording tapes mm-hmm. in this. It's one of those where... Where, we're like, yeah, distance from something occurring is, is, like, a big motif of... Which, again, would translate better to a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, for building a film tension, the oh-no-it's-behind-you thing is not, like, a, a super inventive trick, but it works. Yeah. But, you know, when you're reading it, it's less effective, because... Mm-hmm. It's, it's prose. Um, so then Harry, the mathematician, uh, who is black... This is belabored. It's um, brought up many, many times. He's black, but he's a man. Mm. Beth is white, but she's a woman. Really saying something about how they're both inferior to Norman. Yeah, Norman, and who is just so eminently reasonable and doesn't know why. They're so hung up. He's a psychologist. Up. This is basically about the perniciousness of identity politics, ruining everything. It really is. We're not joking. Or This is one of those no-really moments. <laughs> There's one in every book we read, it seems like. (laughs) Um, But so Harry figures out how to open the thing, goes into it, and it spits him out a couple hours later, feeling groggy. Mm -hmm. And then it seems to turn on once he comes back to the ship. And all of a sudden, it's trying to contact them through their ship's computers as an AI named Jerry. And meanwhile, um, up on the surface, a storm starts so that they can't evacuate. Plus all of the tapes have to be taken to a mini sub twice a day or else the mini sub will leave without them on the assumption that they're all dead. So there's kind of our ticking time bomb, except that I forgot that that was a requirement. (laughs) Well, it's not an important requirement until it directly affects Norman. Yeah. Dumbledore was on roller skates the whole time. And I will give the book this. I really liked the these, like, first Jerry chapters where all of a sudden this previously dead ocean floor is, like, they're, they're finding... Because Beth is a marine biologist. No, she's a zoologist. The marine biologist randomly didn't get to come along. For some reason. Which created... Well, it, the only reason it's that way is to create a situation where she's um on a bad footing and is not really the one qualified to be doing this. Mm. Because, like... He could have just made her a marine biologist. This is a choice he's making as an author for her to be unqualified. Mm -hmm. But so all of a sudden sea life starts appearing around the ship and, you know, they take it out and and it looks normal, but they catch one and she dissects it and it like is missing several organs that it should have. And like, that's, that's neat and spooky. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yep. And at this point, it's basically a mashup of The Abyss, Solaris, and Event Horizon. Uh-huh. Like, it does- <laughs> Which is, you know, why it's funny that Sam Neill- And also the fact that the Sphere movie came out a year after Event Horizon. And I think suffered for that. Because, <laughs> like, Event Horizon is not a good movie, but it's- No, but if you want to do cosmic horror- hmm Oh yeah, it, like I feel like... Which this is trying to do cosmic horror light, which is the worst combination of words. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, Event Horizon's problem isn't that it lacked I... ideas, it was just that it got defanged by the studio. Yeah. This is also basically chomping the flavor of Forbidden Planet, if you're more of a vintage sci-fi buff. mm. Yeah, things are happening. We do not know why the thing happened. Oh it's no. Spooky. Oh no. It is our unconstrained... Mm. Subconscious. Yeah. There's also some waffling about whether um the new cultural mythology is sh- shitty movies you saw as a kid. I, I feel like <laughs> he has to reach so like, far to get that piece of shit conclusion. I I feel like Robert Langton would be would approve. I feel like we sure. could, I feel like we could get some talk about the divine feminine in The Little Mermaid. That's up a- in this bitch. That's a cursed fanfic that should never exist. <laughs> uh, and it would herald the end times. But, like, it's the most forced thing because Crichton got an idea, so he has to make it so that none of the people on board know basic fucking Greek myths, which I still got taught in grade school. Right? In the 90s. And also he reaches for this thing where where, where Harry uh, Adams... Because the other kids in his neighborhood played basketball, he hates the entire concept of games. <laughs> yep. A nerd, a mathematician specifically, who hates games. Not just sports. Not just all doesn't like games. to participate in sports, but the entire concept of games. Uh huh. Yeah, because it turns out that the sphere is not an independent AI, it is just. When you go into it, it connects with your unconscious and gives you Haruhisa Sazamiya powers. Yep, that that's it. Mm-hmm. And then it's fucking boring for the next two thirds of the book. Like people are dying and stuff, and it's fucking boring. It's this. All the other women get slowly winnowed down. Ted and and Captain Barnes get killed off. Mm-hmm. Captain Barnes gets killed off in a situation where he's outside the ship and gets chomped by a giant squid but one of the other uh crew members tina is there and norman just assumes tina left his ass to die with absolutely no evidence but she, he just assumes that she's a coward and then she dies yep He 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 watches her die and doesn't like care yep well you see there's no room for organic material on the ship <sighs> suddenly nipples yeah, so the thing the thing about the Everybody sphere... Everybody has to wear lycra jumpsuits and... The sphere is at the bottom of the ocean in a time travel ship because it its power was not meant for man to have. Or maybe. Possibly. He, he doesn't commit to that or anything. He just sort of faffs around about it while having well, techno babble combos. While also going out of his way to say, but really it's incomprehensible and we'll never know. Like, at no point does he commit to an explanation. It's just a device. Yep. There is an element where it seems to be giving the the people who go into it what they want, but then it is also, oh no, manifesting their fears and, and making those real. So and this looks different for different characters. So in Harry's case, Jerry, quote unquote, is is him being sort of like petulant and in, in, insecure and having an inferiority complex. And, like, again, Norman's a psychologist, but he just can't figure out what's different about Harry from when he knew him six years ago, when he was sort of this open-hearted kid who was so excited to to have all these opportunities of going to grad school, to now when he's this, this bitter and closed-off 30-year-old. What, is what could have... Hmm. I wonder... Whether I- it's the inherent racism and classism of upper-level academia? maybe possibly no no No, that couldn't be it that would be ridiculous Uh, that's that's it though and like beth is a giant bitch because one time when she was 22 her advisor slept with her and convinced her to move in with him and stole her research which is obviously objectively her fault because how could she not know that he was planning to do that to her when she was 22 and he was in a position of authority over her. And, and this is why she works out. Mm-hmm. Like, it's barely one step above She she's ripped because she was sexually assaulted. Like, that's the next step down from this. And when she calls them on their victim-blaming bullshit, it's evident that we are not supposed to take her position seriously. And Harry would be my favorite character, he's the most interesting, except that he gets a really horrible line in the victim-blaming conversation. Oh yeah, it's really bad. Feminism is cancer, and black guys need to chill out, is yep. what we're getting from Norman, who, who is the only sane man, because he's in touch with his emotions. We never see any actual evidence of this, because he's a deeply avoidant idiot, but... Yeah, and then, you know, the final part of the book, he eventually gets in the sphere, is that he has to face, you know, his inner demons. And it's it's just And that nothing he- goes bad when he touches his inner demons, except that he turns into an asshole who wants to let everybody else die. Mm-hmm. But he overcomes it, and nothing was lost. So there is... The thing with Beth turns out to be not just that she has issues with men because she had this one bad experience with a professor, but she has suicidal impulses overall that feed into her larger dissatisfaction with her work and her life overall. Um, And so that becomes a danger because, you know, the sphere is manifesting all of her subconscious desires, so... It has created a monster that is coming to get them that will require her to set up a bunch of explosives around the ship and blow them up. It's very convoluted. And then this excerpt happens. And that was the point where I stopped and threw the book. Beth saw herself as a victim who struggled against her fate, always unsuccessfully. Beth was victimized by men victimized by the establishment, victimized by research, victimized by reality. In every case, she failed to see how she had done it to herself. And she's put explosives all around the habitat, he thought. So yeah, this is pretty explicitly about a victim-blaming mentality where these two marginalized brilliant scientists at the top of their field are really just being pulled down by their own insecurities and the own, that the stuff that they are projecting onto reasonable, rational, straight white men. So yeah, it's a real fun read. It's such an extra slab because like it was, it was dumb before then. It was like very num- by the numbers sci-fi and I hate techno babble. This, I'm not into even good hard sci-fi because I, I, kind of zone out in all of those uh, – with those uh, elements that, you know, people go to hard Hi- sci-fi for, which is here is the logical extrapolation of how we could get here from our permanent te- – per- present technology. So, like, it's just not for me. And but and then this is a bad version of that. But, like – Well, and this is such a bad version of that because um... – there's a typo later in this book that makes it blatantly obvious that Crichton is working from notes that where he had conversations with people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> Cause there's a point at which, um, Oh, we they're... posted this on our Twitter. Sorry. Go on. Yeah. You can see it there. Yep. I posted this on their Twitter where they're talking about substitution ciphers, which again, were my jam when I was 12 or so and reading this, I checked out so many books on ciphers from the library. Uh, and Harry says, "Well, the sequence of numbers that the the entity is sending me from the computer could be a substitution cipher, like an ASCII code, but like he spells it, it's spelled in text A S K E Y. You know, ASCII is the thing that people like, use in make lowercase. <laughs> the the little bunny arts, not cap, not ASCII." No. So it's so obvious that he has as facile an understanding of this as he's giving to you garbled through a telephone line. Mm -hmm. And like, listen, I'm not an expert on anxieties, except that I have them and deal with them. The limited personal research I've done, but I promise I know more than Michael Crichton does in this book. Well, and it's so masturbatory because on the one hand, it wants to assure you that you should take psychology seriously. Because it's a serious science, but in a masculine way, like. hmm b- Because, not because feelings are important and concrete, but because they're irrational and dangerous. Oh, yeah. There's also some good old 80s fappery about how, you know, emotions are important, and when people take drugs, they just don't want to deal with those emotions. Yeah, well, and, um... But yet, at the same time, it wants to emphasize that, but really, you can never know anything. Mm -hmm. Really, people are just unpredictable animals. But also, this guy's the best at people, despite constantly overlooking entire swaths of of reasoning that might contribute to why the people around him behave a certain way. Again, why can't they just let him, a reasonable straight white man with the most objective perspective, solve their problems for them? It just boggles the mind. So the white people sedate the black man so he can't hurt them because he's dangerous and and unhinged and irrational. Yeah, while Beth is setting up those explosives I mentioned, Harry is unconscious because that was the only thing that... Like, he can try to talk her down, but the only solution for Harry is to sedate him. It also turns weirdly horny in the last third of the book. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden there's all this focus on Beth's body becoming more soft and feminine which I guess is supposed to imply that she always she doesn't actually want her body to be the shape that she's carefully made it yeah like it's full it's full on gosh I like the the hard masculine woman wishes she could be beautifully traditionally feminine because the sphere is also giving them things they want in addition to their darkest fears so like it's real muddled on how that works uh huh yeah I don't and then she she tries to fuck him, and I don't know why. He's married. Uh-huh. At and, and no point during the sequence where she's trying to fuck him does his reason for not fucking her have anything to do with his wife, it, which makes me think that he has gotten a lot of syphilis from a lot of shrink conferences. <laughs> like, the crabs he has brought home to that poor woman. I'm sure that she's not too bent out of shape about whether he comes home from the bottom of the ocean. Well, that's where you get crabs. <laughs> but at no point does the fact that he's married with, with kids in high school and college enter his mind. No, it's just that she's acting kind of weird. And but... maybe she's not qualified to decide whether she wants to fuck me. She must be trying to murder me. That's the only reason she would want to fuck me. Which good job with that reasoning. You you've thought that through better than the one guard in X Men. <laughs> Like, I guess you technically, which like, fair enough. You are utterly unfuckable, Norman. Uh huh. And he accidentally happened on good consent ethics, but like, not because he cares. No. No, no, no. Just because because he's afraid of people. (laughs) And so they get out of it because at the end he successfully loads. He becomes God. Uh huh. And he makes, and he is the only one who is equipped to get a handle on his inner demons, and like. Very thinly, ostensibly, it's because he's a psychologist who understands the human mind. But like, but like, but like, uh, these two are just so unstable with their gosh darned identity politics, and it's like the most obnoxious like thing. If the in the first term identity politics, w- were in vogue in 1987. He, he makes them absolutely flat, like straw version, like versions of angry minorities in the first half of the book. Like it's it's bordering on that the woman in, in Legally Blonde, a movie I like. The you Oester know, but... Lady. Uh huh. That's the worst scene in that film. Yeah. You know this is the bad feminist. Be more like the pretty blonde girl. I love that movie, but yeah, it's bad. <laughs> that that moment is bad. <laughs> um, Do lesbians exist in that universe? I mean, Vivian. That woman is a lesbian. Who hasn't realized it yet. But do lesbians exist in the universe of those? Because I feel like the only ones are angry lesbians. You may have a point. It's a very heterosexual feminism. Yeah. Honestly, you're right. Beth should also be a lesbian. Although that could have gotten even worse much Mm. faster. Yep. Like, I guess it's good that she's not, because then when she tries to fuck him, it could have been a whole new level of worse. Like, but but like... Beth would have been more interesting if she were a lesbian. Mm -hmm. This book is not interested in being interesting with its meat puppets. (sighs) Also, Beth has bread. We are assured of this. She She has a daughter and she failed at marriage. Harry apparently doesn't have relationships. I can only assume that this is a closeted gay autistic man who is sick of everyone's shit. And that's why he's so bitter. Bye, Harry. (laughs) He's my favorite. And he's still awful. Uh-huh. What with the whole... That whole victim-blaming line. Yeah. That's the other thing. This book has a bunch of things where you would be okay with a character, and then they say one thing, and it's like, oh, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Harry is that sort of autistic-coded character where I want to say that it's almost doing a good job because he's also very astute and perceptive about people's emotions, but only when the plot requires. Mm-hmm. So he's like... Autistic coded in that he's a savant and blunt and kind of a dick, but also empathetic, except when he's not empathetic. Uh huh. Because. And it, it varies wildly depending on how useless they need him to be for Norman to step in. Mm hmm. Yeah, because he, he's the closest to having. He, he figures out the shit that's going on with the time travel mm-hmm. early on in the book. That's the other thing that makes this so Dan Brownish is that every mini chapter ends with somebody concealing a piece of information that's immediately revealed Mm -hmm. a page later. After you put your kid to bed, like it's, it's, uh, it's very airport read about it. Uh huh. So the story ends with all of them just barely getting away from the explosives and and coming up with the tapes and they all decide, well. Because Norman uses his god powers to make sure that, that the blast wave doesn't kill them. Mm -hmm. Because he is calm while the other two are panicking and shivering behind him. Mm -hmm. And they decide this power was not meant for man to know. What are we going to do about it? (sighs) Your favorite trope. This is also just the the weakest fucking cop-out shit. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so they decide... They remake all of reality so that... It never happened. So that it never happened, and the Navy just called them in for, like, an underwater plane crash for some reason. hmm And there was, like, an accident with the air scrubbers. Yeah, so everyone's very confused as to why there's all of a sudden an emergency, and they can't remember why any of this has happened. Uh, except- and like, five fucking people died. Mm-hmm. They they just died, because squids. You know, those squids. <sighs> no, no, there was no squid. It was just the air scrubbers. Mm-hmm. Farewell, squid. I hope the squid is still down there. Me too. Just horrible, horrible electric squid who should not be because Harry is not a biologist. <laughs> so it shouldn't be alive. Yeah, <laughs> like, but it's I assume really one... <laughs> I, I, I dig it. Also, horrible, corrosive jellyfish. Mm-hmm. That, that was an interesting moment when they, they killed the lady off for, for the crime of wanting to fuck Ted. I mean, that was a mistake on her. part. Oh yeah, that was definitely a mistake. But like burning her to death with poison jellyfish snow that eats through her suit. Harsh. Uh Uh-huh. But like grown people are allowed to make that mistake of wanting to fuck Ted. (laughs) And his sports car. (laughs) There's one thing this novel wants us to know, and it's that women can't be trusted. Uh Uh-huh. Even though you need them to create a mixed gender environment so that things will be stabilized you still can't trust them Mm -hmm. they shouldn't have power you just need them around to be pretty and calm things down because the final reveal of the book is the implication that beth reneged on their agreement and did not wish away her psychic mind powers because she's still pretty yep that's right you know how women be when when they, like, are willing to doom the entire universe just so they can be attractive. And let's not think any deeper about how cis men have created unrealistic standards of beauty that, have, that might force a woman to such an extreme position if we were entertaining this thought. Yeah, but I think Norman went in first. I think Norman's an unreliable narrator throughout, and this whole thing is his fault. I think that's why everybody else around him is unstable. I think she was right. I think she was on to something. I mean, I'll take it. Honestly, um, you know how they discover that the computer was actually saying Harry instead of Jerry when it introduced itself? Uh-huh. When they finally get to the decoding sequence late in the book, where, where they're like, oh, yeah, it actually is saying Harry. I flipped back to see whether mm-hmm. Crichton was smart enough. To to do it wrong on purpose? He, he did not do it wrong on purpose. It always said Harry, which is disappointing because how cool would that be? Uh-huh. That would be very If it good. actually changed in the text, but you'd have to actually look at the cipher sequences. But no, no he it's all spelled out. Hard. No, but I think this whole thing is Norman's fault. Again, I am here for this. Because I hate him. I hate him so much. I hate him almost as much as I hated reading Michael Crichton's Wikipedia page, where he did a... He dunks so much on people having multiple marriages. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a weird thing for him to do on account of, um... He was on his fourth marriage when this book was published. Out of five. Mm Mm-hmm. And the only reason he didn't have more is because he died. Allegedly. Allegedly died? Yes, he only allegedly died. (laughs) He's still (laughs) out there somewhere? He's (laughs) Slenderman. Actually, when did Slenderman start? Because, like... Crichton died in 2008 look at the pattern (laughs) I mean Michael Crichton would make shitty codes and he definitely believes that if you know something it's a bad thing so (laughs) Slender Mythos solved oh my god (laughs) fuck you and your climate denying ways Michael Crichton (laughs) fuck you very much 2007 he gave that speech. Uh-huh. 2007! That was only 12 years ago. Uh-huh. Also, he hates reviewers. Oh, tell them about the... the, the, the tell Some, them. Somebody gave him a negative review. Specifically about his climate change shit. Uh, yeah, about writing a book with shitty climate denial stuff. So in his next book, he included an, a random interlude about a reporter with the same name, who worked for the same publication, who was being tried for having sex with literal infants. Say it with me. Newborn porn. (laughs) Serbian film style. And had a tiny penis. That's right. He made... Like, this is even more than the time Godzilla ate Siskel and Ebert. Uh Or was it Ebert and Roper at that point? I think it was Ebert and Roper. I think so. But, like, even more than that. (laughs) Like... He he made somebody a pedophile because a they gave him a dick, bad review. Baby rapist. <laughs> because of Dude. course you know it's the only thing his dick would fit. I'm going to hell. Uh huh. No, that that was the implication. Is that like we thought the child would be more damaged by this, but turns out his dick is that small. <laughs> oh my God. Uh huh. <laughs> oh, you can't even make jokes about this. Nope, <laughs> because he's that shitty of a person just cannot could not handle a negative review of which he should have gotten more frankly a lot more Mm. a lot more and again these books do lure you in by being like page turners and making you feel clever because you can because they'll sit you down and explain um space time and gravitation with a bowl full of fruit Mm-hmm. And, it make, and it makes you feel clever for being like, okay, I can grasp this. Right, in the same way that Dan Brown kind of fucked around with the cryptography. Yeah. They are of a kind, those two. Mm-hmm. And then you always get to the last third of the book and it's suddenly there's a soapbox beneath you. And it's filled with poison. It's filled with <laughs> <laughs> lie. You a fucking joke. I can't top that. It burns. No, we have to stop now because we can't top that joke. <laughs> so, yeah, don't read Circle. Just don't do it. Just say no to Circle. Yeah, we kept calling it Circle, like, the whole time we were reading it, just to dunk on it. Yes. Because <laughs> it's that flat. Crichton might make another appearance someday, yeah. but I need, I need break from this asshole. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. Yeah, again, this is one of his more innocuous books that I picked because I read a lot of them as a teenager. So many. We we under we overlook a lot of things when we're a teenager and we're uh-huh. young and we're dumb. I mean, this is far from the worst thing I read as a dumb teen because I recognize an author's name. That one has to be Race Against Time by Piers Anthony. Oh, boy. That fucker. Mm hmm. I wrote <sighs> to him once. He was weird. That's a story for another day. Yeah. Yeah. But... An upsetting story. <sighs> All right. I think that is enough. Michael Crichton. Do we have any suggestions for like fun, pulpy time travel books that don't <laughs> suck that people could read instead? Time travel or like underwater stuff? Um, hmm. I've just sprung this on us. Now we're sitting Unfortunately, here. Unfortunately, <laughs> like, all of our books have been packed, so I can't glance around the room. <laughs> uh-huh. Because we're moving right now. We'll hit you up next time. I I, I always like that idea of, of of folks who at the end of their show toss out at least uh, one other... You know what? A wa- watch Event Horizon. It's real yeah. dumb, but it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's a dumb horror movie. Watch The Abyss. Oh, oh that movie you love. Watch that. Uh, Sunshine. Oh, yeah, it does have a lot of similarities to Sunshine, just in the sort of unrelenting danger outside your controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a weird movie, but, like, it's a fun watch. I mean, for a given value of fun. True Anxiety enough. inducing, but, yeah. like, I like it. Yeah, so there you go. And that that also sort of focuses on the idea of group dynamics Mm -hmm. in a closed space. But it seems to know what it's talking about a little more. Yeah. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of them on SoundCloud by searching Trash and Treasures. We're also on Apple uh, Podcasts or Stitcher. Let us know if there are any other podcatchers that you all use and you can't get our podcast on. I guess um, because we're totally down to... Submit the uh, the show to more. It's just that we don't always necessarily know all the vectors people are using, but we want to be accessible to you. Um, and if you could, you know, leave us a five star rating or review, it would, you know, make us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, and it helps folks to find us in uh, search results. Or you can get hold of us on, on email by uh, at Treasures underscore pod at outlook You can get hold of us on social media on. Tumblr at TrashandTreasuresPod.tumblr.com or on Twitter at TrashPod. Uh, and come say hi, we'll give you a shout-out on the show. This time, uh, I want to give a shout-out to at Listsexual Porter, the, their name is, who did up a really nice recommendation and we all kind of got feelings and tears yeah. and it was really sweet of them. <laughs> thank you so much. And our hearts had feelings. <laughs> so, so thank you. You know, we are... We are just a little show puttering along, but we're really grateful to have all of you here with us. And that's more than enough sincerity for me for one (laughs) six-month period. Uh, Next time is really exciting, though, speaking of, you know, having feelings about the show and all, because it's time for our anniversary episode. Yay! Yay! So look forward to that next time. And until then, take care of yourselves. See y'all.